The Escoffier series continues with Chapter 7, The Principles of Cooking Meat. This chapter, particularly the cooking methods, is going to be at least two episodes. Escoffier has a lot to say about the various cooking procedures, and probably rightly so. Is all that detail worth the outcome? Will anyone really notice the difference if you cheat here or there? Will inferior products be hidden in these cooking methods? Let's find out. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 240, Food and Freedom, once a week, for life. Dan Reed here. An ice cold blush wine and a hot day is about as good as things get. Find blush wines for your dog days of summer. Yeah, they're coming. At California Wine Club, the number one internet wine club. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash CAWineMain to shop for your summer wines. All right, so as said, the Escoffier series continues. This is Chapter 7. Now we're getting to the center of the plate stuff. Escoffier starts the chapter with a solid 11 pages of instruction and commentary on cooking procedures. There are more than can be done in one episode, which I said so, and I'm also going to be starting this a little bit on the slow side because... Well, we'll see why. <laughs> so, with at least a few disclaimers. Releves. What is that? That's the first word in the chapter title, releves and entrees, and refers to large pieces of meat. A steamship, the whole hind quarter of a cow, is about as big as you'll see, but you'll never cook that at home. More in line with things you might do at home would be a crown roast, a whole strip loin, maybe an eye round, possibly a whole brisket, but that's another show, and I actually did that show about smoking briskets, which was episode 138. In chapter 7, you have to do some close reading to catch what Escafe is referring to, and it gets even a little bit more complicated because he says releves in the chapter and then goes and talks about joints. But it doesn't mean the kind that flex. It's very confusing. So the main thing to know is what his distinction is, is that releves are big pieces of meat intended to feed approximately 20 people. And entrees are the thing you get served in front of you as a completed main course, so a steak or tornadoes or a breast of chicken or a leg quarter of a chicken. That's the, that's the key distinction. So we've talked about cooking processes and procedures before in the hors d'oeuvre part and a little bit in the soups part and just because of the cooking and browning process. But here, Escoffier gives perhaps the most detail so far 
about the specifics and particulars of cooking. He was, in his own way, a food chemist. What is in this book is the result of a lot of trial and error and represents, for his efforts, the best he knew how to do. Now, what we don't know is what perfection he achieved after publication. That kind of may be lost to history, or at least precious few people have that. While some details have borne out not to be so, searing doesn't seal in meat juices, the attention to detail remains relevant. Now, between a language difference and a time difference, not, you know, six o'clock, but hundred some odd years, the term relevé is mostly lost. And to verify this, I asked my local butcher who doesn't know what I'm talking about. The Scoffier does identify the rump and H-bone as subprimal areas for suitable beef for braising. The H-bone is the hip, the butt. He also cites the sirloin. Now, he cites the sirloin in this particular case as suitable for braising, and I struggle to imagine a sirloin that needs braising. He also notes that, quote, in fact, the best results are obtained from joints of older beasts. Meat from very old animals, however, is unsuitable as the cooking time would need to be greatly extended and the result would be of a dry and stringy nature, end quote. Now, he does offer that very old beasts, and I don't know where that line is, are suitable mostly only for stocks and broths. Another detail to mention is the process called larding. Larding is the sewing of long strips of pork fat into the main muscle of the meat. The intent is that the fat will melt a little bit in the cooking process and penetrate a little bit the surrounding fibers of that meat to make it a tenderer and more flavorful piece of meat. Now, I've done that. I've eaten it. It makes a difference. It doesn't turn a fat-free venison loin into 80-20 ground beef, but it does contribute a little bit. Rump cuts are best for braising since those muscles do a lot of work, and so the fibers are very dense and require long, slow cooking to be made tender. For meats intended to be braised, Escoffier recommends a marinade of wine, red or white depending on the meat, as well as vegetables and herbs and spices. Now, at the Golden Mushroom, a restaurant in Southfield, Michigan, at the time, the chef was certified master chef Milos. Uh, he would marinate venison headquarters in just such a marinade. Now, Perhaps the best example we might know today of a hunk of beef marinated is sauerbraten. Now, that takes marinating to an extreme. Instead of six to eight hours that Escavia recommends, it's three or four days. But, oh boy, howdy, you get a good sauerbraten and that's the thing worth enjoying. 
There are lots of specifics and particulars that do not make for a good podcast. However, the basics for brazing is worth covering. Part of the issue with Escoffier's procedures is effort and time. He had a very well-staffed kitchen, and most of us are all three chief cook and bottle washer. Now, one of the examples he gives is sear the... So maybe it's a rump piece, maybe the gooseneck. Uh, that's a funny term for a piece of meat out of the out of the um, hindquarter. No fat. So he would he he writes sear it well, take it out, wrap it and tie it in sheets of fat back, and they like, you know, it's just it's not going to happen. So uh, not everything translates. So. For our braised piece of meat, remove the meat from the marinade and pat it dry. Strain the wine from the solids and save both of those things. Also, necessary for the braise will be some appropriate stock. Brown the meat well in clarified butter or bacon fat. Uh, if you happen to be the person who has beef fat, absolutely use that. Uh, duck fat would work. The larger the piece of meat, the more brown the meat should be and the deeper the crust should be. Now, that's achieved by lowering the heat a little bit and letting it get really good and brown. And part of the purpose of all this is that crust is going to develop lots of caramel, which is going to wash off into the braise and also more flavor. And the, the deeper that crust relative to the size of the meat is going to create more flavor all the way around. So, remove the meat from the hot pan to a sheet pan or a plate or something on the side. In that same hot pot, same hot pan, add the vegetables. Now, because the vegetables were in a marinade, they're bound to be a little bit wet. It's going to spit. So, arms out, <laughs> careful. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a bit of a mess. Uh, add the veggies to the same hot fat and brown them well. Replace the meat on top of the veggies. Add the bouquet garni and the wine that was for the marinade. And allow the wine to reduce on the stovetop to kind of a thick syrup. Now add some good brown stock heated, which is a detail I missed earlier. So you've got on the stove while you're browning your meat, you've got your venison, your venison, your meat stock, um, probably beef, maybe veal stock. It's hot. Add that to the, the pot. Bring that to the boil. Add the meat. Cover the whole pan with a lid or a foil and put that in the oven to finish. And a knife tip easily pushed in and comes out is your clue when that meat is done. Now, the thing that I can't tell you is how long it's going to take for any particular piece you have. It's, that's an impossible task, but start looking at 45 minutes to an hour for most thick hunks of meat. In nearly every case, a braise nearly every case of a braise, even beef stew, the meat will need resting time to, now this is kind of hard to visualize, but even, so we know that we need to let grilled steaks rest. Well, 
Thanksgiving turkey also needs to rest. Same thing with this big hunk of braised meat. It needs to rest a little bit. Even stew benefits, but a little less so because the pieces are small. The other main thing we want to have happen with our resting hunk of braise is we need to finish the sauce. When the meat is cooked, we move it carefully to a platter. Now, it's possible you want it, that it might fall apart, which will affect the aesthetics but, and, and maybe your ego, but that's about it. Cover the meat with foil to hold the heat in and then allow the rest, uh, allow the sauce to rest for a few minutes so that the fat rises at the top. We're going to skim that off. Save that for your eggs and sausage for breakfast tomorrow. Strain the sauce into a suitable sized saucepan. Bring it to a boil. Thicken it with a slurry of arrowroot or cornstarch. Double check the seasoning, adjust as necessary, and serve that and your meat with the accompanying vegetables and uh, appropriate starch, if you're having starch. Sounds simple, right? It actually is pretty easy. It's just not something we do every day, so it seems a little disorientating. The effort isn't that great, but the thing that changes in the home kitchen is you're on top of yourself auto almost automatically. Scafia recommends the piece of meat be placed in a pan just large enough to hold it. Well, that's fine, except nearly all of us are not overwhelmed with a variety of braising pan sizes and lids that fit. I have, well, I have a couple, but if you have one, you're probably ahead of some people. Now, what Escoffier didn't have was a crockpot. A lot of us have that. So, if, if you have a 14 or a 16 inch Calphalon braising pot and your piece of meat barely covers, fits in there, but that's the only thing you've got with the cover, then, then that's the thing to use. It, it doesn't mean, oh, I can't braise because the pot's too big. <laughs> that's not what that means. Um, there, there's, there's a luxury in a restaurant kitchen that we home cooks don't always have. The crock pot evens that difference out. So because it's going to be just small enough for most everything we're going to do, even that big one holds quite a bit, even a nice big hunk of uh, pork shoulder. And that's, that's a game changer at home because it'll do that slow cooking. You still have to use the stovetop to brown the meat, get the fond in the bottom of the pan, cook all the vegetables. Now, I, I glossed over it, and I don't want to suggest this isn't important. When you're adding the vegetables from the marinade, or as when I explain a little bit later how to do the asabuco, you want to make sure that they're all being browned pretty much on all sides if you can. What we want to avoid is just taking those strained veggies, putting them in the crock pot without browning them at all, putting the meat on top of that, and then adding the rest and adding the wine without reducing it. Will the meat cook? Yes, the meat will cook. Will it be fabulous? Probably not. Will it be tasty? 
Yeah, it might be. Will it be as good as you can do? Not even close. So this is where that question asked in the beginning, can you cheat? You can, but there, there is, well, price is the wrong word, but, but you don't get out what you put in. Well, you do get out what you put in. If you don't put effort in, you don't get very much out. So brown the veggies well and follow those procedures for a superior braised dish. Scaffier offers this caution that too much pan, so that's what we're using the crock pot. So if you've got a little teeny piece of meat and a giant calphalon, uh, wrong word, maybe that's the right word, calphalon pan, too much liquid or extreme moistening, which is what he would say, of the meat produces inferior results. Quote, a braise is perfect only if its sauce is of a minimum, well-concentrated amount, and so the greater the amount of liquid used, the less the flavor of the sauce. In short, the joint is merely washed over, end quote. Now, this almost seems counterintuitive. If I have more juice and more, more stock, I should have better sauce. The, the key problem is that the, the meat is going to, even in a liquid, the meat's going to release liquid from itself through the process of protein coagulation. That's just what happens. And it's going to seek kind of an equilibrium with just enough sauce and a small enough pan that equilibrium is reached sooner because there's less stuff it has to come out of the meat to make it equal to what's outside the meat. I hope that was clear. In a bigger pan, more of the flavors coming out of the meat trying to make, make this equal. So think about how much you have to squeeze a sponge in a small container to get the water out of it versus a big container, a soaked sponge. The more you have to squeeze it, it's kind of like your meat. It's a really bad maybe a slightly bad comparison, but I, I'm trying to create an, an illustration. So the remedy of sorts to a braise that had too much liquid is to reduce the sauce well, which will concentrate the flavor of the sauce, but it doesn't do anything about the already diminished flavorful meat. So it's kind of insipid meat with really great sauce. And when you eat them together on your mashed potatoes or your risotto or whatever it is you're putting it on, your polenta, it, it kind of works as the flavor, but it doesn't undo the dryness of the meat. So it, it's, again, here we are. If that one pot is all you have, then braise, get more meat. I don't know. It's, it's not a thing to not do because you haven't got the right pot. Scaffier does make another point that uh, basting, now he brings this up several times, that basting is a necessity. Well, Grandma's Sahara Desert Dry Thanksgiving Turkey says otherwise. Now, man. 
maybe there are other reasons Granny's turkey is as dry as sand, but basing didn't help that. Now, there's very little support aside from tradition that basting serves any purpose. I don't baste meats. If anything, I'll add herbed or garlic butter to the start of the cooking with the intent that the flavor remains when the butter melts, but really those applications are more for roasting, not for braising. The next kind of cooking is poaching. Now, corned beef might be the most common example we have today of poached. They might call it boiled, but it, and it could be, but if you do it in the crock pot, it will be poached. Uh, in a classical kitchen, a chicken galantine is poached. Now, a galantine is very, well, that's actually effort. Braising is a lot easier than making a galantine. A galantine is made by deboning a whole chicken, usually starting at the back and leaving all of the meat intact. But you take out the carcass. So, in essence, the cook debones the chicken, leaves the meat attached to the skin, separates the meat from the bones, and then once that all is all cleaned up, adds a force meat. Force meat is 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 a it's kind of like sausage. And garnishes. That would be appropriate. So for chicken force meat, it could be pork. I mean, for chicken galantine, uh, the force meat could be pork. It would probably would be chicken, maybe mixed with pork, and garnishes. Uh, pistachios, chanterelles, morels, truffles, poached egg. It could be darn near anything. That whole thing is then rolled, folded back together. It's, it's hard to imagine you're taking this unmanageable chicken skin with meat on it and folding it back into a round shape using plastic to hold it in its shape and then that whole thing gets poached slowly for as long as it takes could take a couple of hours and then cooled in that poaching liquid because the galantine is served cold now that is a tremendous amount of effort, and no one would expect you to make that at home. But man, oh man, done well, pretty enjoyable. And the poaching liquid would, now this is where it gets even more challenging. Either you would take the poaching liquid, clarify it like for consomme, cool it again, cut it into the cubes for aspic, or you already have aspic and you serve chicken aspic with your chicken galantine. In most cases, Corned beef excluded, the poaching liquid will be used to make the sauce, assuming, of course, that the poached thing is being served hot. As with the braise, use only as much as is needed to cover and cook the item. If the stock is being used, and it should be used, it will need to be made ahead of time for a properly flavorful sauce, which means that adding, say you're braising, I mean poaching. So you bought a brisket, you bought a half of a brisket and you corned it yourself. Now this is a bad example because they excluded corned beef. Um, let's, well, I put myself on the spot here so I can't come up with a good thing, but oh, poached chicken, let's do that. So we do a poached chicken breast, skinless of course, and we're going to poach it in chicken stock. Now, what Escoffier is saying is have the stock made ahead of time. 
So putting the chicken bones from the chicken that was attached to the chicken breast in the, in the pan for poaching, expecting the chicken bones to surrender enough flavor to make the broth then worth turning into the sauce isn't going to work. Now, because a chicken breast is going to poach in about 20 minutes, a chicken bones needs a good several hours to release their full amount of collagen and flavor, and you're going to get very weak, insipid, not flavorful broth. So have your stock done ahead of time so you can turn that into the sauce for your finished dish. Now, all that about poaching is to say that, except again for the corned beef, poaching seems mostly dead as a cooking practice. So certainly I think it is in restaurants, which is too bad. Well, eggs, poached eggs, uh, no sauce made from that liquid. Poaching does impart a lot of flavor, especially for food served cold. Poached and cooled in the same liquid helps preserve that flavor. And so a poached salmon or a cold poached chicken breast or that very laborious chicken galantine, that's a very nice, lovely little lunch. The practical applications of braising. Now, this is getting into what you can do at home. The practical applications of braising is more often seen in cuts like asabuco or lamb shanks or uh, English-style short ribs, which just means that instead of the long bones, the meat is cut against the bones. So, and, and they can be kind of thick. I've seen them as much as thin as, oh, maybe half an inch and as thick as a good inch. Oh, boy. <laughs> nice inch thick cut English short ribs. Oh, man. It's, that is worth doing. So at the previously mentioned Golden Mushroom, as the butcher, it was my job to braise the pheasant leg quarters. Now, we got whole pheasants in. Now, I mean whole, I mean whole. Head, feet, and feathers, and guts. So we had a steward. His job was to feather the birds. My job was to gut them and finish the butchering process. Uh, so we did have pheasant stock. And for the braising of the leg quarters, they were browned very nicely, both sides. Uh, I came with the classic mirepoix, carrot, celery, onion, leeks. But we added apples to that for a little bit of a sweetness. So as to the asabuco, something that was a good selling dish pretty much everywhere we served it, the braise was like Escoffee explained, except we didn't marinate the meat. The shanks were dusted with flour to add to the crust on the meat and also to leave some flour behind for thickening the sauce. Pardon me while I have a drink. Uh, add the meat to a very hot pan. Brown them well on that one side and turn them over and brown them again on the other side. I'll brown them still on the other side, adjusting the heat as necessary. When all the meat is browned, remove that to another pan, another platter, another plate, and in that same pan add the veggies. Now here, I do something that everybody does. 
I add the carrots first. Carrots have the most cellulose and take the longest time to color. They don't get brown very quickly. After they start to develop a little bit of brown in the pan, then add the celery and the parsnips. Now, the heat's going to come out of the pan a little bit, and you'll notice that will be the sound. The high sizzle will drop down in pitch, but it's going to come back fairly quickly. And even at that low pitch, the browning, the Maillard reaction is still happening on the carrots, and it's starting to happen on the celery and the parsnips. When you see the color starting on the celery and the parsnips, then add the onions. In a dish like this, I also like to use leek greens. A dish like this is a dish that is a braise that, or a sauce, but a braise of a dark meat. Lamb or veal uh, would be the, in the circumstances where the leek greens add flavor. They're also going to add some color. And since leek greens are pretty tough to eat, it's a way to at least use the thing that you paid for. Using them up makes sense, pun intended. The high sugar content of the onions means they'll color fastest, so adding them at any place other than the last makes no sense to me. Once the onions start to brown, then add the tomatoes, and tomatoes are going to be water, which stops the caramelizing process. Since there's no marinade from the acebugo to add, deglaze with regular white wine, avoid the stuff in the store called cooking wine. It's hideous and has added salt. If you won't drink it, don't cook with it. And if you don't drink, don't buy that stuff anyway because it's hideous. If you don't drink and you want to braise, now, the, I don't know if they still make them, but uh, you can sometimes get like, 250 milliliter four packs. So it would be a liter of wine and four little bottles. One of those little bottles is perfect for, for a braise. And that way you're not wasting it and you haven't got to drink it. Now, uh, and so that, that works. And it's better than that so-called kitchen wine. Once the wine has evaporated from the pot nearly entirely, add the meat back to the pan and the juices that have accumulated on the pan, and then add the stock just to cover. Add the herb bundle or the bouquet garni and bring the pot to a boil. Cover and finish in the oven until the meat is fork tender. Now, that detail overlooks the fact that the oven was already turned on and ready to go. Now, that was in the restaurant setting, but at home the same finish applies. When the meat is done, remove the meat to a bowl, a plate, a pan. Well, a bowl is probably a bad idea. Strain the sauce. And press the guts a little bit to get the good stuff out. Now, the stuff strained out is trash. The liquid, you want that. Bring the stock, bring the, at this point, bring the sauce to a boil. Check the seasoning and thicken with the slurry of arrowroot or cornstarch. And you're ready to go. The meat will have some veggies attached to it. Remove those. Those are garbage. If dinner is now... Serve the meat on your preferred starch. Mashed potatoes is always a hit. And pour the sauce, finished sauce, on top of the asubuku, placed on top of the mashed potatoes. And it's probably best that that whole thing be put in one of those nice big pasta bowls. Lamb shanks follows the exact same process. 
For as much as I hate, and I do hate mint and jelly, I do acknowledge mint and lamb works. So, I add mint to the mirepoix. Mint is a volatile flavor, mostly, but does linger, and that's the part I like. It's the second or third tasting note, not the first. Dark veal or dark beef stock is fine for lamb shanks, since nearly no one has lamb stock, included in the grocery store. Uh, if your butcher has lamb bones and you're so inclined to make uh, lamb stocks and then make some lamb soup and braised lamb shanks, well, that's commendable. Serve lamb shanks on black olive couscous. Or don't. I'm not the boss of you. They're going to take a little longer to braise, but the same thing applies. And when they're fork tender, and that knife goes in and comes out, and they, they're like falling off the bone. <laughs> oh, God. It's just, it's, just, it's just so good. It really is. I miss those. Summer's coming. It's going to be too hot for that. Never too hot for Asabuco, but too hot for lamb shanks. All right. The next Escoffier series episode will continue with more cooking procedures. There's a fun one, which is a fair amount of effort. It's worth trying, especially if you have uh, an earthenware cooking vessel. It's called poiling. Um, you've probably never heard of it, probably never seen it, probably don't know anybody who knows what that means. Um, and and we'll, we'll make some some adjustments to the process, but man, it really it, do, it does make for some very delicious cooked food. It really does. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being here. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. If you haven't started your garden yet, visit your local nursery and pick up some starts. I'm giving leeks a try this year, and that's exactly how I did it. I went to the local nursery and I said, hey, I want this. I hope it goes well, because I really like leeks. The garlic jumped up the other day, and that's exciting. And I also bought some okra starts and another artichoke and tomatoes and a tomatillo. There's at least a month before I can put any of them outside permanently, but I hope that this early start with my starts gives me an edge on lots of okra. Because we like that stuff. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music. For the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.